from the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola Prison, is the largest maximum security adult prison in the U.S. Angola is the perfect symbol for the criminal legal system's ongoing legacy of racism. It's transformed from a slave plantation to a camp for mostly Black laborers exploited by convict leasing, all before becoming a prison. For over a century, Angola has been a site of human rights abuses, which continue to this day. This fall, a new chapter of horror began on its grounds. The detention of children in the same cell block that once held incarcerated people awaiting the death penalty. In August, the ACLU and partner organizations filed a class action lawsuit, Alex A. versus Edwards, seeking to block the transfer of children to Angola. The lawsuit is pending, and in October, the state began moving children as young as 14 into Angola, a move that violates both state and federal laws. Here to talk to us about how we got here and how the ACLU and community partners are continuing to fight the avoidable and unconstitutional detention of children in Angola are Gina Walmack, executive director and co-founder of Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children, and Tammy Gregg, deputy director of the ACLU's National Prison Project. Gina, Tammy, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. So, Gina, I'd like to start with you. You co-founded Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children in 2000. And thanks to the work of community organizations such as yours, juvenile detention rates in almost all states have fallen by half in the last two decades. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you founded this organization and the campaigns that FFLIC has led to push the state of Louisiana away from youth detention and towards community programming and therapeutic interventions. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for making that statement. Um, Sometimes we don't think about the impact work has across the country. I was working for a parent organization, the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana, when listening to our families and hearing the horrors of parents, guardians looking for support for their kids and not finding any only to um, have their young person tracked into the criminal justice system. We had, um, we were filing a lawsuit around the conditions of confinement. Once the parents got together, they wanted to join the lawsuit and a light bulb probably went off and it was like, we can file, have a campaign, a campaign um, that then um, works with the legal system, but community, because literally, and lawsuits, right, and the legislative process. What we found is that lawmakers had never seen, really seen this population. And so hearing from families made the huge difference. It was like, oh, these are human beings. These are parents who love their children. These are people who look like us, who need support and who need what they need for their children, just like we do. And so through that process, We were able to connect the dots, offer solutions with our partners, our legal partners, our legislative partners, um, and we were able to pass the juvenile justice reform. So it sounds like what you've done is really put a face to the issue with your work. 
You know, I wanted to ask many of the children and families you work with and advocate for are Black children and Black families because of Louisiana's discriminatory legal system. In 2022, about 350 youth were detained in Louisiana and 80% were Black. Why is it important to frame this conversation with that understanding? It's always important to name what's actually the root cause and the issue. We're still a racist state, right, and country. And until you recognize that Black and brown children are just as valuable as white children, then nothing else is going to to matter, right? Because um, laws are one thing, practices are something completely different. And it's just unfortunate that the same issues that we were dealing with back then, um, you know, over 25 years ago, are the same issues we hear today are still dealing with and grappling with. And that's because Black and brown children are dispensable to this state and they're seen only as servitudes, right? And it's just important that this prison industrial complex functions and it's going to function the more we can push um, Black and brown children into that system and then into the adult system. And, you know, while as a Black Americans and people of color, we deal with this on a regular basis, but you see across the country, no one wants to really address that as the root and the main reason that our young people are, you know, still behind the the curb. And we can say, pull yourself up by the bootstraps all we want, but we have no bootstraps because that's the way the system was designed. Thank you for saying that. Tammy, I want to bring you in here because the ACLU's National Prison Project oversees this work from a nationwide perspective. So while Gina is focused on Louisiana, you're seeing things from a nationwide perspective. In what ways is Louisiana's juvenile justice system unique? And in what ways is it grappling just with the same kinds of difficulties that we see in juvenile justice systems across the country? Sure. Uh, Thank you for that question, Kendall. Uh, On the national level, I would say that uh, Louisiana is an outlier, particularly with regard to what we're looking at in this case. There is no other state in this union that has put youth And although in this case, we've been looking at children from 14 to 18, the uh, provision that the state is following in putting kids in Angola allows children as young as 10 years old to be placed in Angola, which is absolutely ridiculous. No other state has done that. They haven't put children, babies, into an adult facility, maximum security facility. They haven't done it. So it's stepping across new boundaries, um, the state of Louisiana. Um, and it's it's uh, unfortunate because I, I, I could say that for a while, maybe 20, 30 years ago, Louisiana had been very progressive in adopting what's called the Missouri model. That's a model of juvenile justice um, reform that allows children to be kept in very small groups of six to 10. It also allows kids to be housed in a residential setting very close to where their family members are so they can actually visit them, which can be an impediment, obviously, if you're at a distance and you don't have transportation. Um, In addition, it allowed for rehabilitation, treatment. It allowed for services, not punishment. Louisiana was following this model and, and just, you know, it's mind boggling to see that kind of reversal in the state that was following this model for a number of years. 
in August of just last year, the governor, who is John Bell Edwards, announced his plan to transfer students from struggling facilities that had been holding children to Angola. Gina, you spoke about this in a recent press release, but so much of America's racist past and present converges in this story. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of Angola's reputation within Louisiana? What is the history of Angola? Angola has always been a horrific place. It's called the farm, you know, for a very good reason. It's just a continuation of slavery in in large ways. So growing up in New Orleans, you know, um, you always knew that Angola is just the worst place to be. It's definitely just very indicative of how Louisiana functions in a very racist way and how the system works to deny our young people opportunities to grow and thrive. There are specific laws that state that juveniles be separated, sight and sound, from adults who are incarcerated. Angola is more than 18,000 acres, but why is it impossible to separate adults from children at Angola? And how does this all kind of coalesce into breaking these laws? The prison is run by um, persons that are housed at Angola. So you have um, people who are incarcerated there, adults who are incarcerated there everywhere. They run the the farm, they clean the facilities, they cook the food. Um, Everything is done, you know, of free labor by the individuals that are housed there. So that is really what makes it completely impossible. There's only one facility for um, health care and services that is the infirmary. The advocates brought forth all this information and other alternatives. It was even more ludicrous and mind-boggling that you would continue to move forward um, knowing that you're going to further traumatize the children. Yeah, exactly. One thing when researching about all of this, you know, I read that the Office of Juvenile Justice is mandated to provide youth with opportunities for rehabilitation. Demi, given this, how can one possibly get to the idea that children should be in a maximum security state prison? So principally, it can't. Let's start with that. It just can't. Um, it's not possible. You can't keep children safe in that setting. You can't provide the services that they are entitled to by law in that setting. But backing up a little bit, the main difference between children in the juvenile justice system and an adult correctional facility and adult um, uh, incarcerated people is the incarcerated people have been convicted of a crime under the criminal code. Children are not convicted of a crime. They are adjudicated delinquent, which means, I mean, there's certainly court involvement and there may have been a violation of what in an adult system would be considered a crime, but they're entitled to rehabilitation because that's what the United States has determined is appropriate. That's what the Supreme Court by law has determined is appropriate. And that's what other states have determined. And that's what our whole sort of culture is, that children are not as culpable as adults 
if and when they commit what we would call a crime or a status offense. A status offense is something that the juvenile might do, such as running away uh, over and over again, uh, skipping school perpetually. Those are the two types of things a child could be adjudicated delinquent for. But the determination of juvenile justice system, and honestly, our culture is, kids do not have the developmental ability to make decisions and to do things that would, they just don't think about consequences. And their brain is still developing until they're 25 is what the research shows, right? And so they shouldn't be treated in the same manner that an adult would be treated for the, for similar sort of circumstances. And so just that alone, the fact that you're following that uh, rubric means that you can't rehab a kid. You can't give them appropriate education. You can't give them um, professional psychological services. You can't give them wraparound services they need for trauma that they have undoubtedly experienced in their their young lives, an array of other services that they are entitled to. If they have um, a developmental disability or a learning disability, they're entitled to even more services. That doesn't happen in an adult setting. Not to get critical of the adult carceral system, but everybody knows that system is not for rehabilitation. Rather, it's designed for punishment. And so the recognition in the juvenile justice system is kids are not entitled to be punished. They're given opportunities to advance, to be given services, to improve, and to not have the rest of their lives tied to a carceral system. They get another chance. They get many other chances, and that's what we're not doing here. And Gina, to follow up on this, where did this idea come from? What happened that that caused this action by the governor? The only conclusion I feel like we can really come to is just out of sheer frustration because the young there were escapes that were happening at one of the other facilities due to neglect and the lack of staffing mm. and the fact that the folks who were running the system were not running it per the prescription of the reform and the, all the wonderful things that um, Tammy described. So my um, deduction is out of frustration and not knowing what to do. That decision just came about. However, many people signed petitions, not just in Louisiana, but across the country, two different petitions. And we made lots of noise. They were literally just going to throw those kids in Angola without any effort to try to make the facility better or provide those services. And honestly, I am sick sick and, and and frustrated and so full of sorrow and anger that we would do this. And it just makes you wonder, what are we doing as a state when we just ignore all of the evidence? I, I don't know what we're doing as a state when we don't want to care for our children, when it is already written in, in law that once these children are removed from home, the state becomes the guardians. You know, it shouldn't be where we have people who are traumatized by our punitive systems, then they react in a very natural way that people, you know, scientifically people react to trauma, which is fighting or fleeing, and then moving children into this more abusive, more traumatic situation out of some kind of veiled security concern how does this all play into this same cycle? And, and how do we actually interrupt 
this kind of punitive cycle? I just keep saying, I, I get paid to say the same thing over and over, right? If you want to have public safety, you have to invest in your community. And it's really not that complicated because you need to make our education system better, not worse. And people should be so frustrated as how a failing school system has gotten worse. You know, people have gone to school to study education and best practice, and then they come to Louisiana and they do the opposite because they just don't care about our kids. And you cannot put it any other way. But after you go through and you look at how our system functions or lack thereof, it's extremely obvious that there is no care and no concern. And I get that people get frustrated because um, crime is happening. You know, you want public safety, then you treat our black and brown children the same way you treat the white children. You believe that they are of value. As parents, we all struggle raising our children and we all need supports, whether we can pay for it or not. We have an entire public welfare system set up to supposedly to provide supports. And if we use data and we looked at it critically, we would see that what we are doing isn't working. And this is why. And this is what we need to do different. But yet the youth and families have said over and over and over what they need. And it does not happen. Yeah, I mean, I can hear the frustration and the exhaustion in your voice just talking about this. And you all are advocating so fervently. And it feels like you're saying the same thing and no one's hearing you. Tammy, I just saw the ProPublica NBC Marshall Project investigation of Louisiana's juvenile detention. And it detailed abuses such as like children being left in their cells alone for 23 hours a day not receiving constitutionally required education nor access to substance use treatment and also being hit by guards. And as the leader of the ACLU Stop Solitary campaign, can you tell us a little bit about how harmful this kind of treatment is for young people? And this was a report that came out before we knew about the the transfer of children to Angola. What can you say about the harm that we're doing here? If I can say this, it Harkening back to what Gina said earlier, those systemic failures largely stemmed from um, not having appropriate resources given into the system, having very inappropriate staffing levels in place, not following established policies and procedures for the treatment of children. For example, there's one um, incident of many that's described that children were so isolated and alone that they were digging through concrete bricks because the cells are made of concrete. They were alone in a very small cell and they dug through them, like physically dug through them with their hands so that they could have a contact with somebody else, um, a human being. And the harms of solitary confinement, the, the research is very, very clear. It's debilitating for anybody, let me say that, um, who's subjected to it. But for children, it increases the rate of suicide um, self-harm, which might include cutting or other activities. It increases uh, the rate of psychosis. All 
types of harm, like in children, one of the things that's important in the differences between the adult mind and the child mind is children are still growing. They are still uh, developing, uh, obviously, psychologically, physically, and mentally. But being isolated exacerbates all of those things. They become more angry. It's difficult to rationalize the circumstances they're in. Solitary confinement, just to talk about some of our um, putative clients, some of our clients uh, at Angola, they have described being in their cell for 24, 23 hours, excuse me, 22 to 23 hours and getting out only for a shower. Just imagine that kind of isolation for an adult, for a child not to have any stimulation, which also causes uh, some of the, of the ills of being in solitary confinement. And much of that doesn't just go away when you get out of solitary. It's increasing the trauma that the child has already experienced and exacerbates that. Uh, never mind being uh, subjected to violence, um, as you mentioned in the article that was reported in addition to that. There is no study that says solitary confinement makes somebody better. It just doesn't, particularly for children, is just debilitative. Do we have any updates on how the kids that are either currently being held at Angola are doing? The children who were there, in their own words, um, shared declarations where they talked about the treatment they've received, including um, uh, they're supposed to be juvenile staff who are trained in how to work with and treat juveniles. It's different from DOC uh, correctional staff who are in the adult system. They talked about the fact that DOC correctional staff guards are actually at Angola. And some of them have had force used on them that typically is not allowed in the juvenile setting, um, only in the adult setting. And I'm not saying it should be used there, but definitely shouldn't be used in the juvenile setting. And children have been subjected to punishment. They've shared that uh, one person acts out, everybody gets punished by having uh, lockdown imposed upon them. And so they get nothing when lockdown is imposed upon them. They've also described how the educational system uh, that they're being provided by OJJ is deficient. Uh, kids have reported that no matter what grade you're in, there's one instructor um, and that instructor splits his time between two tiers and he teaches them the same material um, no matter what grade they're in or what age they are. Gina, what have you heard from parents? I mean, the parents are the same things. Like they are just concerned for their children and their well-being. And what'll happen if the children who have been traumatized and not receiving any treatment and any services? And I mean, it's the same thing that they've said all the many years. The kids come home sometimes worse than when they went in. And and so um, it's just a scary time for for families, and I know the general public is always like, you know, well, these parents weren't doing their jobs or whatever. No parent have an aspiration for their child to be locked up, let alone locked up in Angola. And when parents are struggling to support and get the services their children need, they're going to struggle even more so when the child returns home because the situation has become exacerbated. Gina's response, as always, right on target. Um, but another thing that's missing for the kids in Angola is their youth who reported they're not getting substance abuse um, therapy. They're not getting therapy that they're entitled to. So just sort of hearkening back to Gina's response, if they're not getting those type of services, what are you setting them up for when they were at least sometimes 
getting those kind of services in the OJJ system. Again, not saying it's perfect, but they got it. And then now we're hearing from students and kids who said they need that, but now they don't have that even. So that's even just more maddening, as Gina said, that there's nobody hearing what needs to be done for these children. And it baffles us because not only have uh, Gina and her organization and other advocates provided frameworks, they have reached out to say they will help uh, Louisiana come up with a way not to have to use Angola. All of that has been falling on deaf ears. I want to dig into the actual class action lawsuit the ACLU filed shortly after the governor's announcement that children would be transferred to Angola. What are we hoping happens from here with the class action suit? And what's the update? Where are we currently at? So initially under this rubric of the state, um, they could move any child from OJJ custody into Angola. Because of the evidence that we presented, although we didn't prevail at that stage, the state um, had planned to move at least 24 to 25 kids initially into Angola. As a result of the evidence we presented that they were not ready and we thought would not be ready and could not be ready, they committed to move no more than eight children at a time. Now, that's horrible. Any children going into the system, we're still litigating. We are still fighting this fight. Um, and we have added plaintiffs to this case, including other children who are in OJJ custody who could be moved under the, the standard that the state has, which is essentially that if you're incorrigible in their view and they've given up on you, that you need to be managed with a tighter security setting, we're sending you to Angola. And it could be any kid, anytime, except for kids in like this uh, unique program. But other than them, everybody can go into Angola at any time if you meet this criteria they came up with. We've also moved for class action certification, which means any kid who is subject to OJJ custody um, would be covered by the relief that we get. And we are seeking to, um, injunctive action so that kids who are currently in Angola come out. Kids who could be subjected to going to Angola no longer be able to go there and that um, they be uh, sent back to uh, juvenile justice custody or more readily home in the community settings that we want them to be sent back to. I will say the state has been very difficult to manage and to work with. And they have raised an argument that um, our case should be dismissed because the plaintiffs that we had named in our complaint are children who they said were going to be transferred, but their tactic has been to keep us from talking to kids in Angola so they could say, we don't have what's called standing. And standing means the right to represent the, the group of kids who are in Angola. And so they filed a motion to dismiss. We're fighting against that. We filed a motion to have access to our clients. And so we're fighting and fighting, but there is a what's called a discovery schedule set, which means the court has determined that there is still something to litigate here. And we are proceeding toward trial, despite what the defendants have done. Wow. Problems at every turn. Um, I'm so glad that we're working on it, Tammy. Gina, you get the last word here today. Kids are being held in the former death row of the notorious maximum security prison known as Angola in your state. That fact is terrifying enough, yet the story has not garnered national attention. What can we do? What can the people listening today do to move this issue forward and to press for the release of these children? 
So for us organizationally, our fight has always been holistic. It's like, yes, remove the young people out of Angola. We definitely want to do that immediately. But we also want to close these prisons because that's not where children belong. And if you literally provide supports and services, then many of the children, because we got, what, over 40% locked in OJJ for nonviolent offenses. Most, um, 70% or so have severe mental health issues. So they shouldn't even be there. You should only have the children that did not respond to treatment and services in the first place. So our fight is going to continue to be that and to continue to hold the try and hold these systems accountable, like the Juvenile Justice Reform Act Commission, to really pay attention and look at the funding and how you can put more money in the community, right? And so our organization continues to be like, look, We have this plan. It is laid out for you. Now we need to implement it. And if you're going to hold our children to the highest level of accountability, but you're not holding your systems to that same level of accountability because you know, what, what is happening and the outcome of these children has, is the responsibility of the governor and the Office of Juvenile Justice. And harm is happening and they're not being held accountable. And that's not right because the children are watching and you have to set the example and you're breaking the law and you're not following the rules. They need to be held accountable. And our children and our families are working to continue to do that. Also, our citizens should take a look at this because if you want public safety, you have to make the lawmakers and the policymakers and the systems do what they're set up to do. What I loved that you said so clearly is that if you're going to hold these kids accountable in these ways, in horrible, horrible ways, then we need to also be able to hold the system that is harming them accountable. Um, And I'm really hopeful that our litigation will be able to do that. But it is not enough. And you're right. We do need to reassess the entire system and start from scratch, probably. So thank you, Gina, and thank you, Tammy, for joining and for talking about this really hard and yet really, really important issue. We really, really appreciate the work that both of you are doing. Thank you very much for having us and having this very important conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay kind.